We're thankful for the Lord's mercies to us today in bringing us to this place and to this hour. And we come now in our study of the book of Proverbs to Proverbs chapter 15 to a recurring theme that you see throughout the book and that has to do with our speech, our words, what we say, the tongue. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. A fool despiseth his father's instruction, but he that regardeth reproof is prudent. In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. The lips of the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loveth them that followeth after righteousness. We see there again in verse 1, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but by comparison or contrast, the grievous words stir up anger. We see over and over again throughout the Proverbs warnings and instructions, teachings about our speech. If God says something one time, it's sufficient, isn't it? And it should be all there needs to be said. But when he repeats something over and over again, it certainly is a theme as we see throughout the Proverbs. It must be something that we should give our attention to. When he emphasizes something over and over, we should carefully consider it and obey his instruction. To whom much is given, much is required, and we're given much teaching on our speech, our tongue. All of us appreciate a kind word in times of sorrow or discouragement or pain. My, how powerful such a word is. What it can do to change our whole outlook on life. Just the words of someone uh, to encourage us. A soft answer is always welcomed, always appropriate. Hannah was a a lady who did not have children. She came to the house of the Lord with her burden, as so often we do. And that's the place to come, isn't it, with our our burdens to the house of the Lord. There will be people who will gather today at the Lord's house who are burdened. They have situations so desperate in their lives and so dear to their hearts. And, And we may not know it from the outward. We may not know what's going on in their hearts and lives, but they've come to to be feed upon God's word, to be blessed by the worship, to hear his word. And we should always keep that in mind because as we assemble ourselves together, part of our assembly is to exhort and encourage one another. That's part of the ministry that we as the priesthood of the believers can take part in. And so we should always look for someone to say a word to and to encourage uh, in whatever way that we can. But Hannah came to the house of the Lord with this burden and she came and poured it out before the Lord seeking his face and his blessing. She was so overwhelmed by her grief of her barrenness and her situation that uh, she prayed moving her lips but not audibly saying any words. And we read there in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 10, and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Now, Hannah spake in her heart, so often that's the way we pray, not audibly or orally, but we're praying within. She prayed in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. I'm glad that the Holy Spirit records that for us because we might think that Real prayer is not prayer unless it's audible words and can be heard. But God 
he understands thoughts, doesn't he? And intents, and and and, and even the tears that that what's behind the tears of our eyes. And so, uh, the Lord was not misunderstanding Hannah, but uh, some onlookers were, and even the high priest, the preacher, got it wrong. Of course, a preacher, a priest, is just a human as well, and so can misunderstand situations. And that certainly was the case here. Therefore, Eli thought she had been drunken. There couldn't be anything further from the truth. You see how wrong it is for us to jump to conclusions and to decide things when we don't have all the facts. And we never really have all the facts, do we? We, we can't see. He didn't know what was in her heart or why she was praying. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? What a, what a blunt, abrupt thing to say for someone who has come to the house of God, spreading their burden before the Lord, seeking an answer to prayer. How long have you, how long have you been drunk and how long are you going to stay that way? Is, is the translation there, uh, seemingly. Put away thy wine from thee. Now, it, that would be true if that were the case, but it wasn't. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I'm a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but have poured out my soul before the Lord. And that's what true prayer is, pouring our hearts and our souls out before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. You know, it's notable there that that Hannah was not, uh, though she answered truthfully, she was not offended at Eli. She didn't respond in a, how dare you accuse me of such a thing. Uh, so you can tell a spiritual person by how they respond to, to wrong words. Uh, that's one of the tests of our uh, spiritual growth, how far we've grown in the Lord, that while someone may be wrong, we're so quick to set people straight. And she did tell the truth, but we get no sense that she was angry or upset, and how dare you to speak to me in that way, and there you are, preacher, and all the things that come to mind that she could have said. Hannah, no doubt, was hurt. She was hurt by her situation, and now she's hurt by someone who should have been there to give spiritual counsel and guidance. But she did not respond in anger, and that's something I think is very important, even as a, a lesser person would have. Eli was out of line, and so that shows us that all of us are just human at our very best, even at church, you know, we're not... Uh, uh, you know, above making mistakes and being wrong. He didn't have all the facts, but spoke rashly and harshly and jumping to conclusions. What Hannah needed was a soft answer, and what she got was an unwarranted rebuke. So let us remember that, all of us, even as we come to the house of the Lord, that there are those who need to hear the word of God will be preached and taught in this place today. And we can rest assured it will do all of its work We have great confidence in it, don't we? It has the power to save. It has the power to heal. It has the power to sanctify and to accomplish and to truly furnish the the man of God into all things. And it's with that confidence that we come today. Let us remember our part is to help and to pray and have an encouraging word as the Lord sees fit and as the Lord gives us opportunity. Our words have weight, though. That's the point. And coming from someone of the caliber of Eli, uh, it, it, it carries even more weight. And we need to remember that as well. Uh, our words can tear down or build up. They can wound or heal. They can be scathing or like a healing balm, like medicine, like cool waters of refreshing. 
Verse 2 tells us there the tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, uses knowledge rightly. It's one thing to have knowledge. It's another thing not to use it in the right way. We can know truth and we can use it like a sword. We can state the obvious we, when, when it may not need to be said just then or just in that way. Uh, we can use the truth, which is always what it is, but we can use it in the wrong way. So wisdom, true spirituality is how to know when to speak and what to say, when to be silent, and when to give an appropriate word. The mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. And I will say here that, that, uh, that Eli was acting foolishly, wasn't he? Pouring out foolishness. He was jumping to, we're foolish when we jump to conclusions and when we speak without uh, thinking through or having all the facts or all the knowledge. And so this verse here in Proverbs 15 reminds us we must be accurate in what we say and and make sure that what we're saying is, is based upon truth. And unlike Eli's response to Hannah, our speaking should be careful and our words should be well chosen. It is foolish at best and extremely harmful at worst to say things, speaking whatever we think or feel without all the facts. Job's friends came, didn't they? And they said a lot of true things. They were not necessarily applicable to Job's situation. So often scripture is used in that way. They said a lot of truth. But again, they didn't have all the facts either, did they? And they they came and they lectured and and hounded and expounded uh, Job uh, to the ground. Their accusations were were groundless. They were absolutely wrong about Job's uh, testing and trials that God had allowed in his life. They wrongly assumed that Job was a great sinner and that he was being judged because of his sin. And uh, they had no idea of what went on in the throne room of heaven and the transaction between uh, Satan and, and the Lord. They did nothing but add to Job's physical and mental anguish. Well, here in Proverbs 15, verse 2, the Bible tells us that the tongue of the wise uses knowledge aright, the right thing in the right way, the right time, the right place. But, by contrast, the mouth of fools poureth out foolishness. So even when we have all the facts, what, there, there's a situation where Eli, when he spoke to Hannah and accused her of being drunken and said, how long are you going to be drunk? And she said, not so, my Lord, I'm just burdened and I'm bringing my request to the Lord. Not only was he wrong in what he said was wrong, there is a way of saying the right thing in the wrong way. Uh, We can say what is true and it might not be in the right way. Even when we have all the facts, we should use them in a prudent way. As the scripture says here, using knowledge aright, speaking the right thing. Our words should not only be accurate, But they, uh, even in truth, that the Bible tells us that we should speak the truth in love. Our verse says, the tongue of the wise uses knowledge aright. One of the earmarks of a fool, and you remember, there are four categories of people that we've met all through our study of the book of Proverbs. The simple, the scorner, the fool, and the wise. And uh, these categories, we see them over and over and over again. And one of the earmarks of a fool... We know the fool is he said there's no God or no to God. They totally uh, cut God out of the equation. But one of the earmarks of a fool is his foolish talking. You can tell. Uh, it doesn't take long to figure out when a person is acting the fool. Their words are empty, vain, worthless, and even more so harmful. The last part of verse 2 here tells us that 
a fool pours out foolishness. In other words, you get the idea of just incessant commentary, narration, giving opinions, whether it's sought or wanted or needed or asked for. And he's pouring out foolishness. It's one thing to be a fool. It's another thing to pour out foolishness. Or as we often say here in the South, running at the mouth, just, just, just like a sewing machine, just on and on and on and on, you know, not thinking. Our Lord warns us about idle words. And in fact, one of the most severe warnings in the New Testament in this area comes from the mouth of our Lord. He speaks it there in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. And there his words about the matter are sobering and thought-provoking, and we should remind ourselves about them in this study of the tongue. There in Matthew 12 and verse 34, he says, The tree is known by his fruit. I have two fruit trees in my yard, and I can't ever remember which one is which at this time of the year. You know, they're putting on leaves and, and blooms and so forth. But before long, I will know without a doubt, one is an apple tree and one is a pear tree. Now, a horticulturalist, I didn't say the word, or botanist can already look at the leaf and tell you what, but I'm not that knowledgeable. They're just trees with green leaves on them. But before long, even I can tell you which is what. Why? Because the fruit it produces is an unmistakable proof of what kind of tree it is and whether it's alive or dead by the fruit it produces. The tree is known by his fruit. Well, that's an apple tree. How do we know? Because it produces apple. That's a pear tree. Why? It produces pears. Oh, generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the treasure of the heart. Think about the heart treasuring things. That's where we ponder things. The heart is made up of the mind and the soul, the inner man. And there we think and contemplate and critique and discern. And that's where we meditate upon the word of God. That's where the word does its work, its surgery, its work on on the inner man. And we treasure up the things of God there in our heart. Out of the good treasure of the heart, he bringeth forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, bringeth forth evil things. Why? Because it's stored up there. But I say unto you that every idle word, that word idle, useless, vain, uh, unreasonable, unneedful at the time, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. What a statement. Think about all that we say on any given day. And even beyond that, what we think, what we don't say but could say, you know. But think about the words we say. Every idle word shall they give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words shalt thou be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Our thoughts are expressed in words. And you and I are responsible for what we say. How often, after someone goes into a tirade or whatever, they'll, you often hear, I don't know where that came from. You know, they, they act like it was someone else who said it. We know where it came from. It came from the heart. It came from what was treasured there. And we, we give an answer for uh, our, our words. When a person is arrested here in our country, he is warned that whatever he says can and will be used against him. You're on record now, whatever you say is on record it can be used our lord warns us and that's sobering to think that but it's far more sobering our lord warns us that we will have to face our words again one day 
And in this day and time where people have technology and everything is recorded and people are recorded without their knowledge and then they hear their words, you hear sometimes you see on shows, and, you know, in the news and how embarrassing that will be. But, but this is true. There's a, the God of, of all creation records and hears and knows every word that, that we say. And we'll have to hear them again one day. In some way, the scripture tells us, though I don't fully understand this, we'll give an account in that accounting for every idle word. What if we could flip a switch over the, the sound system and play everything that you said just today? What if all of a sudden someone pushed a button and everything I've said from the time I got up this morning until now has been played here? It would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? Hopefully there's nothing that... But still, just hearing our comments about what we said about anything along the way would be kind of humbling, wouldn't it? Shouldn't we live in the awareness that uh, there is an audience, the audience of one, the, the audience of our Lord who hears uh, all things and, and keeps an account? Would you want that to be played in public? I, I can't imagine that, that many of us would, but it ought to greatly concern us that God hears our words. It has been said that all the words we speak in a lifetime could fill up the, all the books in the college library. Now, I don't know how someone figures that, that out. Some of us, it'd be far more than that. It'd be more like the Library of Congress, your present party, uh, certainly. I wonder how many of those books would be worth reading, though. If you go to a library, there's just a large amount of the books that don't even, shouldn't even be on the shelves. They're just useless. Some of them are bad. Some of them are profane. Some of them just don't, they're just empty. I wonder how many of the books that contained our words would be useless. We desperately need to come before the Lord daily and confess uh, the sin of, of rash words, of foolish words, of lying words, hurtful words. Think about it, that we of all God's creation have been given this ability to speak. And it may be one of the greatest privileges we have, and yet we often treat it very lightly and, and irresponsibly. And with great privilege, there is great responsibility. We need to re repent of our idle words so that we do not need to hear them called into account at the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 3 is one of the first verses we taught our children to memorize when they were little. And we wanted them to know that whether mother or daddy were there, the Lord was always there. And this verse, I think, greatly encourages in developing the fear of the Lord, that reverential awe that this Hagar of old said, Thou, God, seest me. Proverbs fifteen three. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The psalmist remembered that. Remember in Psalm 139, If I go to the lowest part of the earth, thou art there. If I go wherever I go, you're there, you see, you hear, you know. What a powerful verse teaching us about our Lord's gracious and amazing attribute of omniscience he sees and knows everything the psalmist reminds us in psalm 139 as i've mentioned O lord thou hast searched me and known me thou hast knowest my down sitting and my uprising thou understandest my thoughts afar off thou compasseth my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways for there is not a word in my tongue but lo Lord, thou knowest it all together. In that list of things of what the Lord sees and knows, the psalmist again re recalls, there's not a word in my tongue that you don't see and know it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. 
I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Surely the eyes of the Lord are in every place. And they're not just there, but he's taking note of the evil and the good. Well, we had better mean what we say and do what we promise, for our God sees. Others may not. They may forget or uh, choose not to care, but he takes note of all that concerns us. I've mentioned there uh, just a moment ago Hagar. Remember, born in Egypt and became Sarah's maid after Sarah and Abraham made that unwise trip to Egypt in the time of famine. Abraham went along with Sarah's idea for a surrogate mother, and they had a child and uh, to try to help God fulfill his promise that he would bring the promised seed. And under the law at that time, that the child that Hagar would deliver would be Sarah and Abraham's legal heir and adopted son. The plan was carnal. It was complicated. And, of course, you can imagine all the, the jealousy and the problems that would come about because of that kind of arrangement did. And as you know the story, when Hagar became expectant, she looked down upon Sarah with her uh, with contempt, and likewise, the two women had animosity between them, as, as can be t- totally understood. And Sarah blamed Abraham, uh, who told her that uh, Hagar uh, was her maid, and she could do whatever she wanted uh, to do about the matter. And uh, Hagar ran away, as uh, people often do when they come to horrible circumstances. She fled, and heading, I'm sure, back to Egypt. And God saw the whole wretched mess, didn't he? He, he saw it from beginning to end. And uh, he heard every bitter and every foolish word. And God loved Hagar and revealed himself to her in, in the wilderness there of Shur on the border of Egypt. And the next day, she would be back in Egypt and find herself in bondage far worse than the one that she ran from. And so often that's the case. We leave one horrible situation without letting the Lord work and and come to our aid there. And we flee and get into something far worse. And she was headed for a worse situation than what she came from. John Phillips says, If the eyes of the Lord had not been running to and fro throughout the earth, she would have been swallowed up by the eternal spiritual darkness of Egypt. But as it was, he intervened. And God so graciously came to Hagar there in that wilderness time and in that literal wilderness And he intervened before she was eternally lost. And Genesis 16, verse 7 tells us, The angel of the Lord found her. Uh, Another saying of a a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord found her. Isn't that what we all say when we look back upon our salvation? the The day, the hour when we heard the gospel and the Lord found me. I was in despair. I can just hear the testimonies now. The angel of the Lord found her. God always takes the initiative in salvation. And he says, Hagar, he he calls. The gospel call comes. Hagar, and uh, Sarah's maid, whence comest thou, and whither wilt thou go? Now, when God asks a question, he knows the answer, doesn't he? The question is for us. Where do you think you're going? How do you think you're going to work this out? Where are you going, and and where, where did you come from, and where are you going? You see, God is showing Hagar, I know all about your circumstance. I know the horrible predicament that, that unwise decisions have made. 
And uh, he came to her in his grace. Aren't you glad that God comes even in those horrible situations where the consequences of our choices are seem, seem humanly impossible to work out? And in graciousness, God's words to Hagar, we, we see here, these are searching questions. And we have to be brought to those places in life where we are search, uh, ask the Lord to search us and try us and know us. Everyone running away from the Lord should ask themselves, where, where am I coming? Where, where, what am I leaving and where am I headed? What, what, where are you in this run, this race from the Lord? Notice that God called Hagar Sarah's maid. He did not call her Abraham's wife because God had never approved of that situation. He refers to her. He calls her name and then he calls her Sarah's maid. Hagar's so-called marriage to Abraham had never been part of, of God's plan, nor could it be sanctioned by him. Before, Hagar was broad, on the broad way that led to Egypt and to eternal loss. Behind her was the straight gate and the narrow way. God, who had revealed himself directly to Abraham, remember when he was a pagan there in Ur, an idol worshiper, knew nothing of the one true God, and God in his mercy and grace revealed himself savingly to Abraham, now reveals himself directly to Hagar. And we have great confidence that wherever the gospel is preached, God reveals himself to sinners. And, and we should pray this Lord's Day and all the Sunday school classes and all the efforts that will go on today to reach the lost, that God would reveal himself to those who need him uh, by his gospel. And so he called her to himself out of Egypt, and Hagar believed. God was the, the God of all grace. And then God told her to put her faith to work at once. And a very difficult thing he told her to do apart from the grace of God. What did he tell her in verse 9 of Genesis 16? Return and submit. Those are two hard words, aren't they? Return. True repentance is returning, going back, making things right, and submitting. These were hard demands from the Lord. But when God gives a command, no matter how seemingly difficult it is to our humanity, there's always the grace to do it. If the Lord Jesus tells a man who'd never walked to take up his bed and walk, with the command comes the divine enablement to obey. When God says repent and believe the gospel, the ability there is given, given, the grace has been given. And so when God tells Hagar, go back, that was the last thing she wanted to hear. And some of you who've come to Christ and you've you found the grace and the mercy of God and then God said, I want you to go back and make some things right. It's impossible, humanly speaking. Why would you ask such a thing? Why can't we just let this pass? But when God gives a difficult, humanly difficult task to do, there's always the, my grace is, it's already sufficient. It is more than enough for us to do whatever he asks us to do. And these were hard demands from the Lord. And in verse 9, she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. That's the whole emphasis of the verse here in Proverbs 15.3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. I will tell you that the Lord has used this verse, just this testimony of Hagar, and that, that phrase, Thou God seest me, uh, as a, a sanctifying work in my own life. 
I have that verse lettered and framed, and I have it on top of a, a chest that I look at every single day as I'm getting ready to go out before I leave. It's one of the last things I see. Is I pick out a tie and put it on whatever I'm doing. I open that, that armoire, that chest there, and on top of that is that verse, Thou God seeth me. I want to remind Chris Lamb that wherever I go or whatever I do throughout that day, that the God, the creator, God of the universe, sees and knows and hears. That ought to bring a reverential awe and fear because there's a, there's a double-sided side to that, that truth. A comfort that no matter what happens to me, God sees and that he's there and he'll help me and lead me and guide me, but also that he sees all that, that I would rather him not to see. And I should think ahead of time by what I do and where I go and what I say. Thou, God, seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me? Our text here in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 4, a wholesome tongue. We like wholesome things. We look on um, the list of the ingredients of, of something and say, I wonder if this is good for me. You know, what does it have in it? Some new product. Or if we hear something advertised, this is wholesome, it's good, it's pure, those kind of words we look for, not only in what we eat or partake of, but in all the areas of our life. A wholesome tongue, think about a tongue being wholesome, is a tree of life. Now, Paul was the chief inquisition of the Sanhedrin. His goal was to exterminate the church. He got permission, as you'll know, license from the high priest to find and arrest and to do whatever it took to squelch this new movement of those in the way. Then he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And we remind ourselves that, that Paul was not looking for Christ when Christ found him. He, was, he thought he'd found salvation. If you'd ask Paul on his way to Damascus... Uh, what or saw what his standing was before the Lord, he would have been very quick to tell you that he was the, the seed of Abraham, of Benj- the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. And he would begin to go down that recital of religious deeds that made him what he thought righteous. And he would have thought that he was saved, that he was a, of, a, bound for heaven, that he was a child of God. And yet he was lost. Religious, sincere, intense, all those other words... Uh, but but lost. But on that road to Damascus, he uh, met the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he called out, Lord, Lord, who art thou, Lord? And uh, I am the Christ. I'm the, the Lord whom thou persecutest. And, and Paul was, his eyes were opened by the Spirit of God. And he, he was drastically changed. And he went from breathing out threatenings and trying to arrest people to being humbled and repentant and absolutely changed that's why when he later writes behold all things have passed away and all things have become new you're a new creature in christ we see that in his own testimony the sanhedrin would now have nothing to do with him those days between paul's conversion and his being accepted in the church the church didn't want to have anything to do with him as well we can imagine some notorious uh, killer or ISIS leader or someone who opposed everything that and was looking to exterminate Christians all of a sudden had a glorious conversion and wanted to uh, uh, unite and come alongside, align themselves with the church. There, there'd be questions. And Paul's testimony was questioned. And uh, the Lord brought people to, to, to his side to help 
disciple him and to, to convince the church that he was truly repentant. And uh, in Acts 9, verse 17, the Bible tells us that a man entered the room and called him Brother Saul. So we know he was gloriously saved. The Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, has sent me. What a wonderful thing it is. Saul desperately needed a friend, didn't he? He had been saved, but now he's just in limbo. And that period of time after conversion until someone finds them place is a very precarious time until they get planted in a church, a church family, and those who will look after them and help disciple them and lead them in the way. And so often that's a time where people can get into, uh, they feel lonely or out of, out, of the, out of the loop and so forth. But the Lord graciously sent this man to Saul. And let me say, there may be someone listening to the class today by radio, and you've come to saving faith in Christ and you don't have a place yet. And the Lord is speaking to you. He's saying you need to get plugged in. You need to be where I can send people to teach you and lead you and come alongside you and take the help that God sends to you. I'll just say that. He will send someone your way to instruct you in the ways of the Lord. Brother Saul, even the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me. Isn't it great that God works on both ends of the line? He's worked in Saul's life. And he's worked in, in Ananias' life to come and, and to deal with Saul. No sweeter words were ever heard. I think that those words were just as sweet to Saul as when the Lord uh, saved him. I've sent someone. The Lord has sent me. And uh, Ananias came. And, the, and they brought new life to Saul and hope. And this proud, knowledgeable, theological expert is now humbled as a little child and needs to be instructed he knew the facts and the figures, if you will, of all the scripture, but he didn't know how to properly interpret them. And Ananias begins to instruct him in the faith. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. A wound from a tongue can hurt worse than a wound from a sword. I'm sure, and I'm not meaning to dig up old things today, but all of us, can think of words that we may have heard 50 years ago as a child, some assessment that someone said, maybe a teacher said, this boy is dumb, he'll never amount to anything. And that rings in your ears. Or a parent or a loved one or maybe even a, a peer, a friend, who assessed your abilities or something, and it was so hurtful, it was so strong, it became truth to you. And it became part of that which has become part of your uh, inner thinking all these years. Uh, a young girl asked Peter at Caiaphas' courtyard, aren't you one of this man's disciples? And remember that Peter in that uh, precarious time in his life, had already been warned by the Lord this was going to happen. You're, you're going to be tested. Satan has desired to sift you. But I prayed for you. And so Peter was in the test before he even thought to realize it. And uh, he said sharply, I am not. I'm not one of his followers. One of the high priest servants asked as they warmed themselves by the fire, aren't you, aren't you one of his disciples? Again, he responded, I am not. He denied his Lord. What did Jesus say? Before the, the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Another prodded further. Surely you're one of them because your speech betrays you. You talk just like one of his disciples. Peter began to curse and to swear and reverted like his former fisherman days, saying, I know not the man. That shut up the questions, but no one knew that Jesus, who knew Jesus would talk like that, he thought. So the, the cock crew crowed, and the Lord looked 
at Peter, and Peter burst into tears. He went out into the night, backslidden, and with a broken heart. Those words from his own mouth pierced Peter's very soul. His own words did. His denial of his Lord. Oh, the power of words. Oh, the overwhelming and the destruction that they can perform and and the the good that they can do. The Bible tells us there in verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction. Again, words. You see how this whole portion of Scripture deals with words. But he that regardeth reproof is prudent. In Dr. John Phillips' commentary on Proverbs, he shares this thought on verse 5. In Daniel Defoe's novel, Robinson Crusoe, he spoke of his father's instruction. My father, who was wise, had given me a competent share of learning and designed me for the law, but I would be, not, I would be satisfied with nothing but going to sea. He pressed me earnestly and in the most affectionate manner not to play the young man or to precipitate myself into miseries, which nature and the station of life I was born in seemed to have provided against. Tearful reminders of his elder brother, he writes, who, scorning parental advice, ran away to the best soldier and was killed, did no good. And Robinson Crusoe continues with his narrative, Though my father said he would not cease to pray for me, yet he could venture to me to say that if I did take this foolish step, that he would not bless me. I would have leisure hereafter to reflect upon having neglected his counsel when there might be none to assist in my recovery." Robinson Crusoe ran away, as you know, the story to sea, and all the world knows he was shipwrecked and on a lonely island. Nine months passed, and he was overtaken by a violent fever. He was filled with alarm. He had no physician, no one to help him. He was, thought he was dying, no friend to help him. And his words, father's prophetic words had come true. No one cared whether he lived or died. He was absolutely alone. The prospect of death terrified him. And knowing he was in no condition to die but was dying, He found a Bible, and he writes, It occurred to my thought that the Brazilians take no physic but their tobacco for almost all distempers, and I had a piece of a roll of tobacco in one of the chests. I went directed by heaven, no doubt, for in this chest I found both a cure for my soul and body. I opened the chest, and I found what I looked for, namely the tobacco, and as the few books I had saved lay there too, I took out one of the Bibles, which to me, to this time, I had not found leisure or so much inclination to read. And Robinson Crusoe was now ready to listen to God. He took up the Bible, he said, and began to read. Having opened the book casually, the first words that occurred to me were these. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver, and thou shalt glorify me. He says these words were very apt to my case and made some impression upon my thoughts. Nothing could be simpler. All the text told him to do was to call. He did not need a priest or a teacher or a preacher. He did not need to do some deeds of penance. There was no need for someone to explain a procedure. He knew he needed to call upon the Lord. He said, before I lay down, I did what I never had done in all my life. I kneeled down and prayed to God to fulfill the promise to me. And Robinson Recuso recovered from his illness. And 27 years later, he was rescued according to the account there written by Daniel Defoe. Well, the Lord will send reproof to us. Remember, he is a heavenly father. And not only does he do that in the gospel call, when the gospel comes to us, but he uh, sends reproof to us as his children. As we often say, we might spoil our children, but the Lord does not spoil us. He does not overlook sin in our lives. He will deal with it. 
He will take measures to show it to us and to get it out of our lives and conform us to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His reproofs are always exactly what we need. When the Lord reproves us, he always uses his spirit. He uses his word. He uses human instruments at times and circumstances to remind us of his word, to reprove us. We have the tendency to get mad at the messenger. Remember when Nathan came to call on David, and David got very upset until he realized that the messenger was from the Lord. It was a gift, and he was led to repentance. And we, we need to honestly and wisely and humbly consider, first, the ultimate source of the reproof. The reproof comes from the Lord. It is his word. And then what we are being reproved about, we ought to always consider that. He that regardeth, our, our text tells us, reproof is prudent. He that listens to reproof is wise, whether it's in the public ministry of the word or in a personal interaction with a friend or maybe even an enemy. Because what they're saying, while we might not want to hear it, may be very true or there may be some truth in it. And he, he who listens and heeds correction, the scripture says, is wise. Do you want a test of your spiritual maturity? We often wonder, are we growing in grace and how, how spiritual we are, for lack of better words. Well, I will say one of the tests of spiritual maturity is how do we respond to correction and discipline from the Lord. Verse 6 tells us there in Proverbs 15, In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. Now, this verse speaks about true wealth. So often we equate wealth and possessions with monetary amounts. But spiritual riches cannot be measured by a bank account, and spiritual treasures cannot be robbed or taken away or lost by something someone else would do. We live in a, a fearful time, don't we, where private property is often not respected. You ride around, you see bars and on windows and burglar alarms and notices that this house is guided and protected by this kind of a, alarm system. And many fear each day of having their possessions taken from them or broken into or their credit stolen or their identity stolen. It gets more and more complicated as the technology increases. While we need to be prudent and cautious in all those areas and take every measure that we can, we shouldn't let earthly possessions possess us. I wonder if that's the case. When we often lose something, we see our, uh, the, the possibility of it being taken from us, how attached we are to it. Our Lord taught in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, needful things, will be added unto you. Take no thought for tomorrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Dr. John Gill writes on this verse, God sometimes blesses the righteous with great riches, as he did Abraham. Or, however, if they have but little, it is better than the riches of many wicked, because they have what they have with a blessing, and they are content with it. And they have abundance of spiritual treasure, they have God for their portion, Christ, and all good things along with him, the rich graces of the Spirit. 
a rich experience of the grace of God. And all of this is but a pledge and an earnest of what we shall possess hereafter. Well, he tells us here, in the house of the righteous is much treasure. You can't put a price on these things. Oh, you may know the value of the paintings and the furniture and all that you have. You may know a dollar value on all your possessions. But how can you put a price tag on an eternal home or spiritual treasure or peace with God or the, the care of God, the protection of God? Oh, these things have not a price tag. But in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. And we'll end there in verse 7, the lips that the wise disperse knowledge, but the heart of the foolish doeth not so. Let us be wise. Let us be careful with our words. Let us speak and use this opportunity on the Lord's Day as we assemble together to minister to one another and to speak words of encouragement. And we can always pray for each other. You might, someone might be sitting next to you in the worship service in just a few moments, and you may not know what they're going through, but you can say, Lord, bless that person and help them. May they find what they're seeking. They may have come to the house of the Lord for salvation. They may have come to hear uh, an answer to some need in their heart. Pray that the Lord will meet every need. Let's go to him just now. Now, Lord, as we end this lesson and as we prepare to worship you in the worship service, we pray that you bless us. Would you use your word to help us with our words? May we realize that uh, it's a very uh, awesome thing that we have the gift of knowledge, and may we use it aright. May we be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, Lord. May we never not use our words when we should speak for you and stand up for right or to give out the gospel to others who need it. Oh, Lord, bless your word this morning and help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.